The Money Podcast by best-selling author of Money, Rob Moore, dives into how to make, manage, and master money. How to know more, make more, and give more. How to save, invest, and raise money. The Money Podcast is for anyone who wants to make more money in a job, profession, or passion. For money masters and money disasters. They say money doesn't make you happy. Rob says it does. Hi, it's Rob Moore here, and this is a live Ask Me Anything on all things relating to money mindset. Ask me anything you'd like about um, making money, your mindset of money, how you feel about money. Do you think you're worth more? Why are you not earning more? How can you increase your earning capacity? Do you have guilt, shame, envy, jealousy around money, sabotage of success, fear of success? Anything and everything you'd like to ask me about money mindset. That's the theme of this um, piece of content. All right, so Stuart said he'd love to hear more about the fear of success. Now, this is a bit of a strange one in that on the surface, why would you fear success? Um, And I didn't really know it was a thing because I don't really fear success, but I know a lot of people do. So let's say you earned good money. Um, Some people would feel, for example, like um, their friends would disown them. Their friends would think that they've changed. Um, and a lot of people, that is a stronger um, driver than actually going and making money. I know that, for example, my wife, she's quite um, fearful of some of the downsides of success, like maybe you don't have the security or the privacy that you would have had if you weren't successful and wealthy. Um, so a lot of people have these unconscious limiters or sa- sort of self-sabotages where actually they, they think they want to be successful but they don't want the downside and, and, and that kind of pulls them. So for me, I always like to try and turn a decision into a binary. Do I want X or Y? Which is the bigger pain? So let's say I, I uncovered some fear of success. I wouldn't want my mates to think I changed. Um, you know, I wouldn't want people to think I was arrogant or like I thought I was better than anyone else. And I wouldn't want all the downsides of being wealthy because there are downsides. I would say... What's the bigger pain? Is the bigger pain never being rich, never being successful? Or is the bigger pain the downsides of, you know, a little bit of increased security and, um, you know, maybe a drifting away of a a few friends? Well, I know for me what that bigger pain is. That's obvious. And that's why I made some, some of the sacrifices that I did in order to try and strive to be more, do more and have more. Um, so I think you want to be honest with yourself about what's in the way. Some people say to me often, well, I I get in my own way or I sabotage my success, but they don't really know what that means because they haven't really worked out what it is. Um, But I was talking to someone today and um, they were like, I don't really know what holds me back. And I said, you do. And they said, but I don't. And and they said, but I've thought about it a lot. And I said, that's where the issue is. It's not about just thinking about it. You've got to feel it. So I said to her, what one thing is most scary to you? What... You know, what um, What do you think is really holding you back um, in you know, being successful? It was happened to be in property. And I just looked at her and I saw her get a feeling. And she just says, I- I'm just scared. I'm just scared of getting rejected. And she knew it. She knew it inside because she just had to feel it. So if I said to you, and this isn't, by the way, some of these questions aren't relevant to everyone. Some people have zero fear of success. Some people should have more fear of success. Um, look at the Katie Hopkins podcast that went um, live a couple of days ago. You know, like... Ma- I didn't really think too much of the downside. I asked the community and, you know, I did plan it and prepare it and I was careful with what I asked. But, you know, I could have thought about the downside a lot more, but I didn't. 
um, because that's not really my nature. But some people, you're much more like that. So, um, you know, and if some people of you are saying, well, it's fear that's holding me back. Well, what is the fear specifically? Fear of what? Fear of rejection, fear of looking stupid in front of others, fear of having money and then lose it all and then having to go back. Um, fear that you're, you'll get disowned by your friends. There's lots of different things and you want to be specific about that. And then when you're specific about that, then you can go and unlearn your um, not bad habits. That's the wrong word. Your programming, your, who you are. You can unlearn that and then you can learn to push yourself gently out of your comfort zone. You can learn to at least do a trial of it. I always think that there's a lot of people out there that know deep down they'd like to be more wealthy and more successful, but they've kind of decided that the downsides or the pain um, uh, is not worth it or that the comfort's too much. And they don't even try it. They don't even know what it's like um, because they haven't tried it. And that, that was why I was probably, and I said, if 80% of the content and, uh, community had said, don't interview Katie Hopkins, I wouldn't have done. I honestly wouldn't have done. But if it had to have been 80%, if it would have been 60%, I probably would have done it. Um, but I felt like, how will I know until I do it? You just don't. That's why I was so gobs gobsmacked that so many people were judging it and they're not even watched the interview and they haven't even watched the full interview. Surely there's got to be a part of you that knows you only really know when you do, you know, when you experience. So uh, I've been skint for many years. I've been wealthy. I've done an equal split test. And I can tell you being wealthy is much better. It is much better. I'm not saying there aren't downsides. Four cars are probably going to cost me 25 grand in repairs. It's six or seven grand probably to insure me for the Lamborghini. You know, like when I have expenses, I have expenses. I've had about 200 grand worth of bills come in in the last two months. Um, you know, I'm getting letters every day from people wanting my money. I get people accused me of being money focused. But those downsides, that is nothing compared to the upsides, what it gives your family. You know, when your wife says to you, I love your ambition. Um, and, you know, when you know what you've built and what you've done and what you've achieved and, you know, the, the things, that, the places you get to go and the people you get to meet. I mean, so get it to a binary. Each time you're stuck and you're not moving forward, get it to a binary. What's the bigger pain? A or B, X or Y. OK, great. So Jake is next. I struggle with pricing my membership product product particularly as I'm effectively the brand. What key bits of advice could you give to help with accurately pricing? Good question, Jake. So here are a few things you can do to accurately price. Now, I know I've done a podcast on this. I've done a podcast on pricing, so make sure you go and get that. But the first thing is I would do some market research and I would find out what's the range, what is the cheapest and what is the most expensive um, in your area and in your brand, in the marketplace. Um, some people are just driven by market forces. Um, and some people are like, oh, it doesn't matter what the market is. It matters what I believe in myself. But it's actually both um, because there has to be a market force element. So if I was being a watch company, so there's a good friend of mine who follows a lot of my work. He's actually in this supporters challenge. And that is Connor, um, Connor Stanage. And he has his watch brand, Stanage, uh, Stanage Watches. And he's a brilliant watchmaker. And if he was going into watches and he was looking at pricing, he could look at maybe Casio are the cheapest uh, and maybe Patek Philippe are the most expensive. And he would get that range. And then he would think, well, where do I want to position myself? And he might ultimately want to position himself with Patek Philippe. But he knows in the early days, he, he just can't do that because the market will not pay 100 grand for a watch of someone who's not known. Unless maybe he does one-off bespokes, which I know he does for very, very famous or wealthy people. So he might go, OK, well, I'll price it at the, the, the mid to lower end because I'm new into the market. And then as I get clients and feedback and testimonials, I can keep nudging up my price with a goal to be in a certain position. Now, by the way, it's not right or wrong to be a certain position, you know, whether you are Casio 
or Patek Philippe, you know, whether you are EasyJet or um, Emirates, you know, upper class in Virgin. It's, it's not that there's a right or wrong. It's just where do you want to position yourself? But you've got to earn the right to be in the highest position. You've got to be the best. You've got to be doing it the longest. You've got to have the best story, the brand story. So I would work out what that, that range is. I'd work out where you want your position to be. I'd probably start a little bit lower. The next thing I'd do is I'd, I'd add some bonuses in. So, you know, with watches, you could have a beautiful box that came with it. You could have a limited edition. You could have something signed inside. And that might take it from 700 quid to 900 quid. Um, so what I often do, as you'll see, um, in the supporter program, I added the, the supporter week. I added the six day challenge. Uh, which is essentially an extra bonus. I added 18 pieces of content instead of just one a day or one a week. So each time I add more value, then I can up the price. Because price, uh, the fair exchange is where I like to be in pricing. And fair exchange is that sweet spot between you make profits sustainably, i.e. enough for it to be sustainable, but not so much that the world thinks it's greedy. But your clients feel it's valuable. The market feels there's value and utility in what you do. That might be in your niche, a 20% margin, a 10% margin, a 30% margin, whatever. A nice, healthy margin. You can reinvest. The market needs you to reinvest into innovation and improving your products and your services and your staffing to, to balance the forces of competition because competition serves the marketplace. So fair exchange when all those are in the right space, i.e. you're making profit. The market sees it's your purpose. You add value to the market. You drive competition um, and uh, the clients, they feel like there's good value. Now, when that sweet spot is perfect, you have fair exchange and you have balance. Now, the next thing I'd add to Jake's question is I would then start testing. So let's say it's a membership site and um, I know that Facebook supports a program at £3.49 is the cheapest and I found someone who does £1,000 a month and in £1,000 a month you get ABCDEFGHIJKLON and in the... Um, in the supporter program, you get A and B, although mine, you get A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, you might go, OK, well, I'm going to price it at $15.99. Uh, but then what I'm going to do is I'm going to launch it at $15.99, see how many I get. And then my next launch, it will be $19.99. And then my next launch will be $29.99. And you keep testing launches and prices until you hit the ceiling of fair exchange where your conversions go down and your profit margin goes down because the price is too high. And then you stay there for a bit. And then once you've been there for a while, you add more value in, you get more testimonials, case studies, a better reputation, and then you can push the ceiling of the price up. And then you push it up and up and up and up. And then you hit that ceiling again when the conversions go down and the, the value perception goes down and people start to say that it's not worth it anymore. And then you pause there and you could start at 349 and you could end up at 999 a month or even more. Um, and there they are my systems and feedback on the elements that you can do to increase your prices dramatically. And they work for everyone, by the way. I'm actually um, writing a book at the moment uh, on pricing. I, I, I kind of did a funny look up there because I'm writing four books at the moment. Um, and I think I'm going to call it Increase Your Fees With Ease. Uh, and um, if I was running the support program on Facebook, I'm not, by the way, but if I was running it, I wouldn't have started at 349. I would have probably started at 749. And I just keep banging it up on each launch, letting everyone who gets in early know that they get it the cheapest until such point as the conversions went down. But Facebook, I'm beholden to them. But hey, I'm very grateful we have 500 new supporters in the last two and a half days. So not complaining. So Kirsty has just added to that, what price would you start a membership site at? Well, if you watch back, Kirsty, if you heard all of that, that will help you 
Um, I would look at the market forces. I'd probably go at the lower end if I'm starting. I'd try and over deliver on the value. Now, the good thing about a membership site is you can pre-record content and you can have stuff that you create once that lasts forever. It has that long burn. You create an asset out of your time um, so that you don't have to keep creating product and service and stock holding, um, which means you can keep the monthly retainer down. Um, every piece of content that I do, I'm actually repurposing this onto a Zoom H1. So this could be a podcast and just um, repurposing it just in case. I've not necessarily got specific plans for that. I might just keep it as unique supporter content. Um, so yeah, you probably want to start at £5, £10, £15, £20. Um, do a launch, close it, um, test to see the feedback, the value, and then just keep increasing your prices launch upon launch upon launch until you get to the point where the conversions go down. Okay, so Natasha. Hi, Rob. How do you know if you've had bad, you have bad money habits and what's the best way to improve the money habits? I feel like I need a money test. That would be good, actually. Kieran, we should think about doing a money test. And um, if we could create something yeah. where people answer like 20 questions and then that helps us work out where their money leaks are and where their money weaknesses are. I think even I could deal with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that's actually a pretty good idea, Natasha. And um, hey, look, we're um, putting it out there. Maybe we'll do that. Um, so basically, Natasha, uh, you want to look at where you spend your money. Now, I know where people spend their money. You don't need to tell me, but um, people spend their money on the things that are of highest value to them. So they spend their money on their values. If your children are your highest values, you spend all your money on your kids. If your appearance is your highest value and doing your hair is your um, <laughs> highest value, uh, don't worry, it's not on camera, then you spend your money on your appearance. You know, there's, there's plenty of people, men and women, who spend a lot of money on their appearance. Money they don't, pers- money other people think they haven't got or money they haven't really got. And they might pay that before their mortgage. Um, if... Um, if how you feel is important, you'll spend money on experiences and how you feel, or you could even create money addictions. Like you buy things, um, you know, that sort of, um, what do you call it? It's gone out of my head, the um, retail therapy. You know, that's you're spending money to feel better. Um, so I would look at where you think you're not spending money wisely or where you're not earning money wisely. You might be spending money wisely, but you might not be earning a lot. And if you're not earning a lot, why not? Why are you not earning more? Why are your peers earning more? Why have you not had a pay rise in X amount of time? And you want to start looking at where you feel the weaknesses in money are. I know for me, I'm good at driving, making money. I'm good at top line. I'm good at growth. I'm also bloody good at spending it. And I know that I've got some ingrained bad um, associations to money, as I have with food um, and, and various other sort of, I'm a very addictive personality. I get addicted to everything. I'm addicted to coffee at the moment. Thankfully, that's my main addiction. Addicted to Netflix, addicted to podcasts. Um, I, I, I could get addicted to air. Um, so for me, I know I feel good when I spend money and I know if I haven't spent money for a while, I, I can feel like I need to and it creates like this urge. And that was therapy for me to make myself feel better when I didn't feel good about myself way back when I was a, a teenager. Um, so now what I try and do is meet that, have that need met by investing money. So like if I buy a watch, which I believe will go up in value, I get that need of, oh, I feel great. I've got a watch. I've got something new. It makes me feel good about myself. Um, and I know, by the way, that's a bit vacuous. I, I realise that that's not the pursuit of happiness. I'm not saying it is. It's it's momentary happiness. It's not, you know, I don't get my happiness from material items. I get them from people. I get them from connection. But I do get momentary blips of intense joy with watches and cars and hi-fi and everything else. And I'm, I'm, I don't deny that. Um, so I realised where it came from. So if I, I just bought a pair of speakers, they were they're £43,000. Um, I traded mine in, which I made a grand on. 
Uh, and I know if I sold them today, I can make my money back and probably a bit more on what I paid. So I haven't bought a pair of speakers. I've moved money from cash into a pair of speakers and they'll sit there. And then if I feel like those speakers might go down a bit, I'll then sell it, cash my money back in and move the money back somewhere else. I did that with my vinyl, I did that with my amplifier, um, do that with my watches, occasionally just put money in the ISIS and the stocks and everything else. So I've kind of, I'm curing this addiction or feeding it but I'm not eroding capital, which is one of the fundamental rules of money where you need to preserve cash. And if you erode capital, you, you risk, um, you know, irregular shocks. So I would just look at where you're spending money badly, where you're not making money, where your leaks are, where your addictions are and what your values are. And then work out what you want to change and then read my book money and listen to my money podcast and start figuring out. Like I have. I have a lot of things in my life that I want to improve. I have improved a lot of things in my life and, and that's always going to be me. Um, each time I grow, there's going to be more to improve or it's going to be a higher level to, um, you know, to kind of deal with and master. And so for me, it's the simple equation. You actually figure out what it is because a lot of people are delusional or they're living kind of um, unconsciously. They're not conscious of their thoughts and feelings um, or they're just in this daze of grind and they're not actually going, why do I feel like that? Why do I do that? What is it about me that I don't like? What do I want to change about me to become a better version of myself? It's not about beating yourself up. It's just about saying, who do I want to be? And then when you break it right down, is it rejection? Is it peer pressure and fear of not being accepted by people? Um, is it envy? Is it um, self-loathing? Is it wanting to keep up and impress people? And when you figured out what that is, then you go, right, I'm going to study that. I'm going to get a mentor on that. I'm going to do courses, masterminds, podcast, um, audio books. And, you've, and you, you start incrementally improving the specific thing, but you've got to figure out what that is. All right, great. So Natalie, money question. My business turns over around 40K and I pay myself 30K, but I can't seem to get above the, that turnover. My prices are high end of HR services due to the high level of customer service I provide. It's very personalized. So it sounds like you just need a few more clients. If it's at the high end, um, you just need a few more clients. Um, I'm going to do a marketing um, live stream Q&A on Sunday. So you can come and ask me about marketing. Um, I've got a, a book on money. I've got loads of podcasts on the disruptive entrepreneur on marketing. Um, but really, if you want more clients, it's marketing you've got to figure out. Now, it's so common, um, and this is for everyone, that, you, that, that there's people like you who are great at your product, your service. You've got skills, talents. You've got loads of experience and knowledge. Um, but what you never got taught was marketing. I know coaches, consultants, trainers, therapists, all sorts of people who they've spent a load of money and time and their life getting experience and they don't know how to market and no one's talking about marketing. And I focus on marketing. Um, and uh, you need to focus on marketing as much as you focus on your product because what's the point of having the best product in the world that nobody um, and nobody knows about, nobody's heard about? Um, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in a vacuum. So you've got to start figuring that out. And that's a mix of putting yourself out on social media, doing this six day challenge like you are, um, learning marketing, going to marketing courses, reading marketing books, listening to marketing podcasts, following people like me who love marketing and embrace marketing and do a lot of marketing and occasionally get criticized for the amount of marketing that I do. I would definitely speak to your existing clients and I'd figure out. So pick your best clients and go, where did I find them? Uh, and what was it? Ask them what it was that attracted 
um, them to your service and then go and market back in those places and create your marketing messaging, um, your pitch, you know, your benefits, your story in the language of your ideal client. So often the, the new money that you need is just finding more of your best clients. So I'll give you an example. Dentists are really good clients of ours. They have good money. Um, they usually want to get out of that at some point. Um, they're reasonably intelligent. They're pretty realistic about what success is. They're prepared to work. They're prepared to study. I'm not knocking anyone else. I'm just giving you one example. So, um, and we've had a lot of dentists that have spent really good money on our courses and training. So I could go and talk to them and find out where they found us and what worked for them and create a marketing, marketing message around that and go and find more people like them. There's quite a lot of people who leave the military that come and join us. Uh, and I could do that. And so you could create these five or six or three ideal client avatars where you're using a specific language and you're marketing in specific places. And where do you know how to find those? A bit of one, testing. Two, you um, go and scope out your competitors and find out what your competitors are doing and learn where they're marketing and read their collateral and kind of maybe even mystery shop them pretending to be a client. Don't tell anyone I said that. But loads of people have done that to us. And I've done that to loads of companies. And all is fair in the competitive arena of business, love and war. And it's not against the law. Um, sometimes you've got to be a little bit cheeky and you've got to put on an accent and pretend to be someone else. Um, where were we, Kieran? Good question. Yeah, we... <laughs> I talked myself around in a circle and made myself dizzy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was it. Um, finding more of your ideal clients, um, scoping out your competition, testing, and then creating this avatar and going to your existing best clients and finding more of them through the feedback they give you. And I just spilt money on my, I just spilt money on my beard. I've got money on my mind. I just spilt water on my beard. Um, let's have a look then. How do you identify your most valuable skill to gain the maximum amount of money? Well, it's probably the thing that's linked to your values, the thing that you um, feel that you value the most in the world, that's most important to you, that you're most passionate about. Now, I say this like this and not just because of some new money-making fad. It's because a money-making fad will come and go and come and go and come and go and come and go. What won't come and go is who you are and what you value and what you find most important and what you've honoured your whole life and who you are and the story that you've lived your whole life and your experiences that you've had. So um, your most valuable skill is probably in your highest area of value and you, what you've honoured and done most of your life. Now, sometimes that can be a passion as well as a profession. It can be a vocation and or a vacation. It can be um, a hobby that you monetize. It could be a, a side hustle that ends up becoming your main business. What do people tell you frequently that you're good at? What do you know you're good at? Um, Ali, if you could only do one form of marketing, what would you pick? Facebook ads, etc. Um, obviously, that's a hypothetical question, so it's not real. But I don't mind playing the game, Ali, because you can ask a question and I'll answer it. Um, I would probably use Facebook. I would probably use um, organic um, page and groups. Uh, I mean, look, we're really focusing on our YouTube channel this year. Obviously, our podcast has gone wild. Um, but actually, Facebook groups, you get this bigger sense of community and you'll get loyalty in there. And you can get massive reach on your page. And at the moment, I think it's the most mature social media platform that's also the biggest and also um, maybe the most commonly used and known. Obviously, Instagram is coming up fast. Podcasts coming up fast. YouTube is huge. It's also about what you're used to. And I'm used to Facebook more than many of the other platforms. Um, but, you know, we spend 125 grand a month on Facebook ads. so It'd be hard to not do that. 
but um, I probably would choose Facebook Ali. But of course, my business that I'm talking about is training in property and personal development and business. And of course, um, some people have different business models which might suit Google AdWords or, or might suit more traditional print media. Wow, this is a long one. I find that I self-sabotage. I often have great initial success, celebrate that, and then end up exhausting myself and stopping completely. And I, I always think that that's a great reason for stopping. We're financially comfortable now. We worked very hard in real estate many years ago, and it set us up nicely. I've had so many excuses over the years as to why I didn't continue. I feel like we're so comfortable now that I don't really have to work, but I want my hubby to stop working, but I'm afraid to start because what if I'm actually so successful that I don't have the energy to do it as I'm not as young as I used to be? I don't know how old you are, but I'm looking at your profile picture here and you look under 50. And even if you were 60, uh, you, if you're 60, you've got 20 to 25 years good work left in you if you want. Now, people always say to me things like, you know, where do you get your energy from? Um, and, you know, how do you um, how do you maintain drive? Um, how do you keep going at something for a long time? What is you know, like passion. And the answer to all of those is quite simple. When you love what you do and do what you love, when your work is also your hobby, for me, that's the answer to all of those questions. Um, you know, those people who are so passionate about what they do, they don't eat for 10 hours. I remember when I was a teenager and I used to play Tekken 2 against my mates and we'd start at like five in the evening and it'd be three in the morning. We haven't eaten. We haven't had a break. We haven't been in the toilet. We haven't done anything. We've just done 10 move combos in each other with blisters on our fingers for like 10 hours straight. Why? Because we're so in the moment. We're in that flow that people talk about. So I would suggest passion, enthusiasm, energy, longevity, um, growth, you know, transcending age, transcending food, transcending body type. All of these is about finding something that you can put your heart and soul and passion into. Now, it doesn't have to be a finished product. It could be something you can grow to love more as you do it. And then I think that most of these challenges will go away. Um, but yeah, comfort is the enemy of greatness. Uh, you're not too old. Um, you're not past it. I would say that um, maybe think a bit more for the long term, because it's a bit of a paradox there, isn't there? On the one hand, you feel like you're too old to start. On the other hand, you, you want to go all in and you've exhausted yourself and then stopped. So what about putting the, those paradoxical feelings together and go, well, I'm going to start now. I want to do this, but I'm not going to go at 180 miles an hour like the Duracell bunny. I'm going to go at 110 miles an hour or 90 miles an hour so I don't burn out so that I can keep going. Um, I really do believe that life is about if you want to be successful and wealthy and you want growth and you want the, 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 the fruits that life can offer you, because that is a, a, an important if, by the way, because if you don't, then this answer is irrelevant. But if you do want those things, the finer things in life that you would love to do and be and have, um, then I believe it's about challenging yourself to maintain discomfort. It's about continual pushing yourself to do things that make you feel vulnerable, that, make, that you could get rejected on. And each time you do that little one and then you grow through it, your brain expands and expands and expands and expands and expands. Now, I always say to people in property, don't go and buy a 500 unit conversion before you bought a buy to let. Because if you go too uncomfortable, too big, too quick, then, you know, burn out or that was a big disaster or I wasn't good enough at that. And then you can retract into your shell. But if you constantly challenge yourself for little bits of uncomfort, you want to say something to someone random in the street 
you don't dare to, you go and say it. You want to give someone a compliment, but it makes you feel weird, you go say it. Um, yeah, you want to look at someone in the eyes for two or three seconds longer than it's comfortable, but you do it. You want to put a cheeky offering on a property that's a bit like, bloody hell, this is, but you do it. And each time you do stuff like that, on the other side is reward, is growth, is you becoming someone who can, has a bigger capacity to take rejection, to grow, to you know, be a leader, an influencer, and be successful, to uh, be able to handle the money. Because a lot of people can't handle the extra money. They don't know how to manage money. And until you know how to manage money well, you won't get more of it. Or if you get more of it and you manage it badly, you'll be in a worse financial position. So what I've been trying to do, so I'm pretty good at disrupting myself, but I'm also pretty good at getting comfortable because I'm a human being. So I've got my lovely little routine. I have my coffee at 5.30 in the morning. I have my second one at 10.30 in the morning. I do this meeting at this time, at this meeting at this time. And, you know, like I'm getting in bed at 7 o'clock with my little kimono, Ralph Lauren dressing gown on, and I do my lives, and I watch my Netflix, and then it's all nice and comfortable. And then every now and again, I go, Rob, you're getting too comfortable. So this morning, I had a fucking cold shower. I just turned it on, and I went in, and it was fucking cold. Um, and it didn't feel good. Ah! And then afterwards, it felt great. Um, and I started asking people things that made me feel uncomfortable. I started sharing things with people that made me feel a little bit vulnerable. Um, I had a lunch with someone. It was kind of a bit weird. Um, it was great, by the way. And, and um, Emma, if you're here, uh, you weren't weird, but you know it was weird because um, I went on a client meeting for lunch. Um, but the client had got this with buying a course and it was a two for one and we offered the course on valentine's day um and so it was kind of pitched as have a um, a romantic dinner with rob um and we sat down and she was like well this is a bit weird because i've told my boyfriend i'm coming and he's like what you having a date with rob and it was all set a bit weird um and i was like that's not weird i'm a normal guy um and then we were talking and when she, we were talking she was kind of looking at me you know, for quite a few seconds, just normal. But that's obviously she was just processing what I was saying. It felt really uncomfortable to look at her in the eyes. And I did it. And it felt weird. And then I felt great afterwards. And then maybe she thinks I'm strange. Um, saying things to your partner, your business partner, your life partner, doing things that could make you, that you could get rejected from. They all make you grow. And that's where your results, your success and your money is on the other end of that. You know, I took a big risk with the Katie Hopkins podcast and um, you, go, you only get the rewards on the other side of the risk. All right, cool. What else have we got? OK, I'm starting a new business with my partner. My niche is mindset, strategy, growth and marketing. Um, action, no excuses. Now, my first client has booked me for 12 weeks, three days a week. As a BDM consultant, paying a rate of X per day. I'm struggling to research typical rates. So many coaches don't clarify their charges. I'm working specifically with businesses and delivering consultancy marketing and just wondered best way to know my hourly or daily rate. Any tips? I think what I answered before, it answers that. What are your competitors doing? What is the lowest range and the highest range? Where are you positioning yourself? Are you at the lower end or the higher end? If you're at the lower end, you have volume. If the higher end, you have service and quality. Um, what's the ceiling of what you believe you're worth? I.e. if it was more than that, you'd feel a bit of a fraud. Try and push as close to that as possible. What extra bonuses and offers um, and add-ons could you add to increase the value perception to reduce the price friction? Um, because by the way, we all know the classic um, phrase, the cliche of people don't pay on price, they pay on value. 
Um, so some people would buy a £20 watch and be unhappy. Someone else would buy a £70,000 watch and be happy. So it's, it's um, based on value, not price. So the higher the perception of value, the higher the creation of value, the higher the price that you can charge. And then make an introductory offer uh, so that you can give them a bit of a discount so that you can make them feel that they got a bargain. Uh, and then each time you get a new client or a new group of clients or you can launch um, and get a, a big group in one intake, you incrementally up the price and test it until the point that you get that price friction again. All right. Okay, Max, what investments would you recommend to start with if you're just starting out versus having enough capital? Well, it depends, Max. Just starting out, the, the best um, investment is probably in human capital, i.e. in yourself or a little outsourcer or someone that can help you or something that can help you start a business, a trading business, whether it's information or product or you know whatever it is that you do. Because if you had a small amount of money, and I don't know what the small amount of money is to you, Max, whether that's a thousand or a hundred thousand, but you know, investing a thousand in an ISA you know, that's going to be 104,000 next year and then 108,012p the year after and then 112,072p the year after. It's going to be really slow. Um, so to start out getting a trading business, uh, that I think um, will, will get you going. And then when you have some profit, then you start ISA, uh, certain man well-managed funds, a Rolex Daytona watch, property, etc. And you start investing in different classes. Okay, so Kirsty has said, don't shout at me. Kirsty! Um, but I actually don't set any income targets. I feel if I set targets, I will feel pressure to earn it and make mistakes and do silly things or rush. I just keep doing what I'm good at and what I like and the money just happens. I'm super at what I do, but my, create, uh, my creativity is high and I know what I need to do, but money is hard. Okay, so that's a bit of a paradox, Kirsty, because I get you. I know that if I go and do a public speech, for example, and I've got a commercial element to that, if I go setting targets, it doesn't help me and I feel more pressure. And it's actually out of my control because um, all I can actually do is the process. So, um, you know, if I do a good speech and I connect with the audience and I move them and make them laugh and I give them good content and I, I, I execute my commercial element well, then I'm going to make maximum money. Whereas if I go, I'm going to make £100,000 from this speech, that's not what I can control. So what I would do, Kirsty, is I'd just have a different set of KPIs. Instead of your targets being financial, I'd make it process-driven, not outcome-driven. So how many sales calls do you make? How many one-to-ones do you have? How many people do you get in front of? How, you know, how well are you rehearsing and improving your offering and your, your copy? And how many... Um, marketing um, sources and streams of leads and income do you have? So increase the process, increase the output, increase what will bring in the money and don't, don't do the targets. Use those as the KPIs and then the money will cascade down. All right, let's have a look. So Khadija, when should I share my content? I've just posted um, about WhatsApp group. So how soon, soon should I post the content? Um, a good time to post content is 8 p.m. or 3 p.m. We're past 3 p.m. So I'd probably go 7.30, 8pm-ish. Maybe go after the content I do tonight, Khadijah, um, to post in, in, in your various groups. Um, now that we're beyond 3 o'clock, which is another good time. Okay, John, moving from a secure, well-paid job to a property packaging business is scary, but I need to know how to best deal with that mindset change. Well, there's two ways to do this, John. You can go deep, you can go straight in, do it quickly, sort of like... Um, a cold shower shock and figure it out quickly as you go. Or you can set a goal for two years or three years to match your um, job income and do evenings and weekends, five, 10 hours a week 
and incrementally source more deals, incrementally source more of an investor list and incrementally package more up. You might find your first three months, you, take, you, get, you do one deal. The next three months, you do three deals. The next three months, you do six deals. And you might find in 18 months or two years or three years, you're now earning five grand a month, which is um, hit your expenses or even your income or even surpassed it. And then you quit and you make sure you set that date. So that's the most secure, safe way to do it. But what a lot of people are doing is they, they want to ha- get out of their job, but they've not set a plan and they've not set a timeline. So there's no motivator. There's no like things drawing in. And um, you all know that when you were at school and you had an exam, you did most of your work for that the day before. Um, or if you had a big project, you were writing it and doing an all nighter because you had a hard deadline. And that's John, if, I think if you create that and everyone else who wants to quit their job ultimately um, some people, a few people, it's right to kind of burn the bridges. And, that, and I did that. I got fired. And, and that kind of did help me. And that was choice was taken out of me because I got fired. Um, and it is probably more like me to just jump in. But it's not right for many. Um, but you can create a plan. And if you think about it, two years or three years in your remaining 50 or 60 years or 30 or 40 years of your life is not a, a, a big amount of time. So you, you put the timeline, you work backwards a little plan, and then you start executing on that plan. And that means you can get to your financial goals and working for yourself and being an entrepreneur, making more money and having more choice and not a huge amount of risk. I just want you to know um, that business and property are fantastic levelers. It doesn't matter whether you're young or old. You're a man, you're a woman, you're an immigrant, you're English. Um, It doesn't matter if you've been bust or not, if you're experienced or not. It really doesn't matter. Property, general business doesn't judge. Anyone can make money in property and business. Um, and that really excites me. So I do sometimes people say, hear people saying I'm a bit stuck. I'm a bit old. I've had this thing happen to me. It, 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 it's a great leveler. Um, you know, in, in certain industries and areas, certain demographics may be more physically gifted or whatever. does make a huge difference in business. It's an amazing leveler. All right. Um, OK, so Camilla. Hi, Camilla. Um, WhatsApp groups, best way to launch? What if everyone is setting them up at once in this challenge? That it, that is something to consider. I don't know how much crossover there is. Um, you want to make sure that you have an outcome for your WhatsApp group, i.e. what's the theme of it? How are you helping people in it? What's the purpose of it? You don't just want to chuck 257 people together um, because if you're in any of my WhatsApp groups, you know what happens. It's like putting 257 vampires in a room. They'll start eating each other. Louise, how do you raise finance when you have negative credit? Well, um, you definitely want to speak to a mortgage broker, get your credit score and figure out what you need to do to repair it. And you can do that immediately. And that might take one simple thing or it might take three to six months. But you definitely want to do that. And then from now on, you guard your credit with your life. Um, You can obviously get unsecured loans. You could do JVs where you um, put these sort of uh, beneficial, sorry, they put the ownership in someone else's name. Um, I mean, people aren't necessarily going to lend you money when you go into a joint venture with them. They're going to put the money into the business via a solicitor or they're going to put the money into a property via a solicitor. So in that regard, um, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not a bad thing to have bad credit. It'd be good, good better to have good credit. Um, but it doesn't always get in your way. And most people I found when they do joint ventures, they're investing in the person, the trust, the liking, um, the believability. The passion, the enthusiasm, the connection they get with you. Now, not all. Some people wish to do the deal. And if you've got bad credit, they're out. And, you know, but it's not everyone. Um, Jonathan Whitaker has asked, how do you how did you generate your first sale for Progressive? I went to a um, personal development course and uh, it was a five day course. And I stayed over and I went out for dinner with all the, the delegates that were staying there through the 
uh, through the week. And I said to Mark, Mark, we should go on courses. And he was like, yeah, but you know, it's money and we're starting business. And I said, well, what about if we go on courses? When I come back, I get two or three clients and the course is free. And he was like, right, deal, done. Um, so I remember Richard Bellars was our first ever um, property sourcing client. Um, and I met him at a personal development event. And then about our next six clients, they were all from these you know, personal development and business courses. And those six clients would have been worth about £140,000 to us. So that was how I started. Um, uh, Steve has asked, Stephen, what's your return on that 125000 a month on Facebook? Um, I couldn't tell you exactly because I don't have the KPIs in front of me. Probably, probably about 175000 I'd love to say it's three. 100%, 400%, but I don't think it is. Otherwise, we should be doing more and more and more and more and more of it. Sometimes the return isn't on the first sale, it's on the second sale. Um, so I know the KPIs, I know what it costs to have a, a lead, I know what it costs to have an event reg, I know what it costs to have a show up, I know what it costs um, to have someone for our, our course for the three days, etc. I know through pie charts and graphs we've got what, um, what all the different spends are and what the, the profit is. I'd probably say... It's about 50 grand net return above the 125 grand spend, give or take. Joe, how do you overcome the fear of putting yourself out there and um, put yourself out there more? It's the only way. Now, work out why you don't like to put yourself out there and go and read books and listen to podcasts and get mentors and do courses on those things that you don't feel are um, where you want to be in your life. Uh, and I've done that in many areas of my life. And um, sometimes you've got to unlearn as well as learn. But the best way to get out of your fear of putting yourself out there is to just put yourself out there. Hold your breath, put yourself out there. Um, and whether that's making offers on properties or going to do viewings or going to do Facebook um, videos. So I would say to you, um, Joe, do a Facebook video straight after this um, and put some content out there. And if that's scary, then do it. Um, because like a cold shower, you'll feel great afterwards. Um, and by the way, when you do small things that, that you fear that you overcome, they get easier and then you can do bigger things that you fear to overcome. And then that's just a, that's the ongoing journey of life. So Jake, I've recently recorded a pilot episode for my new podcast. Um, how do you monetize a new show? I wouldn't monetize a new show. I'd wait till 20 episodes, 30 episodes or 50,000 downloads or something. Um, because I think that if you monetize it straight away, well, you haven't probably got the listenership. Uh, and so you're not going to monetize it without the listenership. And I don't really think maybe in English podcasts, it's that great to um, immediately have ads. I remember listening to a podcast, an American who I really respect. I've had him on my podcast and there were two or three ads on his first show. And he's supposed to be a really successful business person. I thought it just came across a bit as desperate. So I put amazing content in your first 15 or 20 episodes and then you could do a launch to your podcast. Um, you could um, f uh, promote an event and uh, monetize that event. You could run um, ads and have people pay you to run ads. You could run ads for your own products. Um, I think on my podcast, Media Masterclass, I cover about 15 different ways to monetize your podcast. All right, so um, Kerry's mentorship program is ready to launch. How do I decide what to charge for a 12-month mentorship program? So this answer is the same that I've answered two or three times, which is go and look at what the cheapest and the most expensive mentoring programs are out there. Work out what position you want to be. 
Um, push yourself to the point where you're a bit uncomfortable about that's almost a high price. Add a load of bonuses in so that you look at that and go, wow, that's really good value and start from there. And then do a launch, try and sell some, close it, deliver the service, add some improvements, get some feedback, make some tweaks, roll that in, get some testimonials, and then you can uh, bump your price up until you hit your first sort of ceiling. So mentoring from with Mark and I, when we started in 2008, was £2,000 plus that for the year, and you got both of us. And now it's £50,000 plus that for eight sessions in a year. And now we, you know, we had lots of experience and bought lots of properties and done what we've done. And, you know, it's, that's been a journey. That's not just been overnight. We would never, as much as it would have been nice to charge fifty grand back then, we just didn't have the confidence or the experience and the market wouldn't have sustained that. Um, but if you keep pushing it, you can get it. And what you do is as you increase the price, there's a bit of guilt because there's always that emotional feedback. If it's too high, there's a bit of guilt. Um, if it's too low, there's frustration and resentment. So you listen to your feedback and then your feelings and the feedback and you go, oh, OK, so I need to offer more or I need to charge more to create the fair exchange. And you get your feedback from your clients on what they want. You put that into the program so it's more of what they want. Then you're able to charge more. And then when you sell out, you just bang your prices up because once you're sold out, you're not going to lose. And by putting your prices up because you're sold out. And so at the times we've actually been able to ramp our price up, the most significant, the biggest jump is just when we've sold out. Um, always make sure you tell people when there's a price rise and give them a chance to sign up at the existing price. Because when you do that, you'll bring in, draw in quite a, a decent amount of business. We've done that. Well, we actually didn't do that for about 10 years and it was stupid. And then when we've done it, we've drawn in hundreds of thousands of pounds. Um, so Yelena, I hope I've pronounced that right, Yelena. Um, how did you grow from small deals to bigger deals uh, incrementally? Loads of single lets, tested an HMO, a few HMOs, um, tested a small office, a few small commercials, tested a bigger one, then tested a bigger one, then tested a bigger one. So we did it progressively. Um, and when you do it progressively, it's not such a shock to your mindset. Of course, if you bought a single let and then you bought the cathedral and tried to multi-let it to 5,000 students, that is actually dumb. And sometimes too big a growth in your mindset or too big a risk or too big a put out yourself out in your comfort zone is actually a big risk to your bank balance and it's scary. And what can happen is you can then retract and create sort of an, an emotional scarring on that and not ever want to go near anything like that again. You know, like when you've had a, relation, a really bad relationship with someone and at the, afterwards you've gone, oh, I'm, not, I'm not dating again. I'm over dating. I hate men. I hate women. Well, you don't hate men and you don't hate women. You just hate how you feel now. And in a week or a month when you've been lonely, you'll love men or women or whatever your fancy is again. Um, so, so what you don't want to do is create this emotional scar, which throws the baby out with the bath, bath water and makes you feel uncomfortable about everything just because you did one bad deal or you went. To, so this is why I'm not so much as keen on 10x as some people are. I think 2x, then 2.5x, then 3x, then 4x, constant and never ending improvement and incremental testing. That's how you sustain growth, edging up the discomfort. Now, every now and again, do something really uncomfortable, but not really uncomfortable financially with um, big risk. And if you can do something really uncomfortable, make sure you've um, de-risked and protected the downside. OK, Helen, I'm stuck on finding it hard to grow. First growth spurt went well and I'm almost stuck in the second stage and want to be in the third stage. Um, OK, do you mean of my six stage roadmap, Helen? Uh, so you've got to start marketing in different places. 
You've got to start going to existing clients to get new clients to get referrals. You've got to start testing new ad platforms on a small budget and figuring out what works. You've got to start start going to events you've not been to. You've got to start pushing yourself out on social media platforms you haven't been on. You've got to start going to clients and finding out who your ideal client demographic, who are your best clients and find more of them and who are your worst clients and gently get rid of them and start pushing yourself out of what you've already done if you want the next level of growth. Um, how many contacts do you think is a good number to start in your WhatsApp group? Well, the more there are, the more noisy it is and the less control you have. But of course, the less there are, the less potential clients there are. Um, the max you can have is 257. That's why I've got three supporters, ones that are full. And I'll probably end up having a fourth. Um, so just get what you can get for now. Make sure you set a set of guidelines so they can't all sell to each other or pull each other out of the group or have a load of nonsense banter. Um, which sometimes seeps into these groups because humans do what humans do. And you've got to police those without being a, too much of a autocrat. Um, but don't worry, I'll give you more tips on that as we go. OK, Mark, I've inherited a property, but I want to leverage it, and get more property. So speak to Gary Das or Andy Sawiak in the progressive property community. They can tell you how to best leverage that money in terms of a refinance. Um, how to get more properties more quickly is you could leverage the equity, but you could also do rent to rents um, and also do joint ventures with other people's money. Um, and you can ask Kevin McDonald all about that tomorrow when he does his session on joint ventures and lower no money down property investing. Um, Stephen has said, how long do you hold on to a property before you sell on to make a profit? For me, forever. I'm not planning on selling any of my properties. I hate selling them. I would just uh, increase the rent over every year or two or three. I would, um, you know, have um, inflation and market growth arrayed my debt, uh, debt ratio, my loan to value ratio. Um, I might refinance them every few years, maybe to get a bit of cash out. But as soon as I sell them, yeah, I get a payoff, which I've then got to pay tax on. But then I don't earn on them ever again. And I'll regret selling them in 10 years. I know it. So I've I've sold less than a dozen properties out of 850. Cool. I think we're done. I think that's an hour. Boom. I hope you found that useful. Um, get your content shared out there, a good piece of value add content. Thanks a lot. If you don't risk anything, you risk everything.